0: Please be advised that the content in the Grave Tales podcast series is suitable for adults only. You're with Chris Adams and Helen Goltz for the Grave Tales, the series podcast. Today, from the Grave Tales Queensland's Great Southwest book, Life at the Asylum.
1: Mental asylums were feared and places of suffering, but for one young girl and her family who lived at the asylum, the inmates provided a fascinating glimpse into the other world of the people who were sent there.
0: The year is 1918, Christopher, mm-hmm. and we're talking about a time when we weren't as politically correct as we think we are now. Right-o. So, what we call mental health institutions and so forth now. We knew that as lunatic asylums.
1: Yeah, and it was a, a disparaging term, wasn't it?
0: I suppose there was a great stigma of going to a lunatic asylum.
1: Well, it was used as a threat. Yeah. I mean, I can remember parents saying to their kids when I was a kid, if you end up doing that sort of stuff, you'll end up in Kew, which was <laughs> where the local place of that sort yeah. was. Yeah.
0: Well, same with me, because I grew up in Toowoomba, and Bailey Henderson was the asylum then, It's still operating as a, a hospital and a wellness centre, but we knew it as the, the loony bin, as we used to call it or whatever, which was very disparaging, but we were kids. And, yeah, they were places of great fear.
1: So how did this young girl come to live in the asylum?
0: OK, well, Helen Macdonald was six years old when her family went to live at Willoughburn Mental Asylum in Toowoomba. So it was 1918, mm-hmm. and her father was Dr James Edward Fancourt Macdonald. It's a big name. Yep. But Dr Macdonald had been practising in Stanthorpe up till now, and he took the job at the lunatic asylum or Willoughburn Mental Asylum. And just digressing, I love that word lunatic. You know it comes from lunar being the moon. Yeah. I have a police friend who said to me that they actually do get a lot more crazy incidents and police problems on full moons, isn't it? Well,
1: I'll tell you a secret. Working in radio and taking a lot of talkback calls over the years, I can tell you that getting towards the full moon, <laughs> they come out.
0: There you go. And they thought we were nuts walking around cemeteries. <laughs> So Helen and her two older siblings and her mother and her father arrived to take up the role there. And I
1: love the way their baggage was branded even when they arrived.
0: I know. It was branded L-A-T-B-A, so Lunatic Asylum Toowoomba. Isn't that interesting? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, really, no holding back. But, you know, what was really interesting at that time was these places were different. These places in this era actually afforded people or patients, we won't call them inmates, the opportunity to work and to hold down jobs and to have a sense of purpose. So they would get up of a morning and they'd go to the different areas of their craft and they would work. So there was a carpenter's shop. They made coffins, oddly enough. There was a dressmaking shop or a tailor shop. There was the garden where you could work and farm. Some of the patients worked in the kitchens and many of them lived and worked amongst the staff there. Mm. And Helen and her family would be living and working with the patients. So it was very much a different environment and it was an environment that encouraged patients to get better and to have a task and not sit in a room all day but to be functional.
1: And I suppose when you think about asylum and the word asylum and what it originally meant before it was attached to places like this was it was a place for people to get away to have asylum to be protected. Yeah, that's uh, a good point. And that's where it came from. These were yeah. places for these people to be put where they were away from what might be happening to them in normal society.
0: Yeah. We want to acknowledge that there's been a lot of suffering asylums and we know that and we've seen some terrible stories come out. But, of course, there was also asylums where there were good people working and there were good things done. There was also an element of society and power where people could be sent to an asylum when there was nothing wrong with them and you know if you had nerves and women often said they had nerves you know, mm. you know oh my nerves whose grandmother didn't say that or if they had depression or if they had something that wasn't necessarily easily diagnosed they'd be sent off to an asylum and also too there was many a wife who was sent there because the husband couldn't get divorced or wanted to or whatever and suddenly she was insane
1: yeah and even the definition of what's insane is interesting i love that quote you've got in there from edgar Allan poe who said mad have called me mad but the question is not- Not yet settled whether madness is or is not the loftiest intelligence.
0: (laughs) Well it's interesting you should say that because there was an experiment in the 1970s, so we're jumping ahead a few decades now. It was called the Rosenham Experiment and it was conducted by a psychologist, David Rosenham. And what he did was he went undercover, presenting signs of mental distress and anxiety. And he used a number of people to do the same thing. And all of them were admitted to hospital on average for 19 days. And when they were discharged, they were all diagnosed with symptoms of schizophrenia or depression in remission. Now, two noticeable takeouts from this experiment were that it showed the stigmatising power of psychiatric labels such as insane... And it showed how hard it was to distinguish normality from abnormality because there was nothing wrong with him or the people that went in professing to have these symptoms. So it's a tricky game,
1: isn't it? Sure is. How do you think young Helen would have found her new surroundings? A child going into one of these places would see it.
0: Well, it's interesting because she thought it was lovely. She recalled later in her life the large vine-covered pergola outside the kitchen, the three large bedrooms in their house, the pleasant drawing room, the good fireplace the old malichip heater, which gave abundant hot water. And her experiences were enjoyable. And it's interesting because she had favourite patients Mm. that she interacted with every day. We mentioned about the patients having jobs. And it wasn't without danger, and I'll tell you one of the dangerous situations in a moment, but a lot of the people that she interacted with daily were patients who worked in her house as cleaners, gardeners. There was so much trust amongst the staff and the patients, as we call them. Don't get me wrong. This was a foreboding place. There was wards for violent patients, from A ward to F ward. Men and the women were separated in their wards, and, the, and each of the different wards restricted patients as be their needs. But these patients different
1: are, levels of security.
0: Exactly. So yeah. these patients that they dealt with were clearly diagnosed as harmless, or perhaps not quite able to go and live in society.
1: So who were some of Helen's friends?
0: Yeah, interesting. She recalled one woman that she loved. She said everybody loved her. Hannah. She was an Irish woman from Canturk in County Cork. she had an Irish accent. And I'd say that properly. <laughs> Hannah used yeah. to imagine that people were leaning down from the sky to talk to her, and she'd pause in her sweeping and chat back to them. The interesting thing was that Helen, writing as an adult, said that she exposed her to history she didn't really understand, because Hannah used to teach her the Irish alphabet. And she'd say things like, E's for all England who robbed us of bread and F's for the famine, she left us instead. You know, really fascinating when you think about the Irish famine. And here she is as Hannah looking up at the sky and talking to strangers and sweeping and talking to young six-year-old Helen and teaching her this.
1: And there was one young woman who used to take her for a walk every day or, or vice versa.
0: Helen spoke about Minnie. She was a young Aboriginal woman. Minnie would tell her the names the native names of all the trees and the birds and the insects and she said sometimes they sit down on a little sandy patch and Minnie would with her fingers make little tracks, animal paw prints and tracks and teach Helen how to do that so she'd make them for kangaroos and emus and dingoes and ducks. Isn't that fantastic? And she taught her how to recognise those footprints. I mean what amazing... Way to learn. What amazing way to learn. There was also another lady who sounded fascinating. I tried to find more information on her and I couldn't which was Matt Meredith and Helen recalls her as being tall and graceful. And they believe she was once a dressmaker in Paris. And she'd arrive at the sewing room every morning and she'd work away until the end of the day. And Helen remembers that she used to always wear this long dress and a a frill cap tied with a bow under her chin. So you can just imagine it, can't you? And Madame Meredith used to make patients' dresses and use material scraps to make little artistic dolls. So she was quite talented. But, you know, obviously the clothing for the patients was actually made on site too. So it was an industry, I guess. You know, they grew the food there, they maintained the gardens there, they made stuff in the woodworking areas, including the coffins, which I suspect they probably sold, I don't know. So it was a real little industry for those who were deemed capable of working.
1: And you've got to tell me about one that's got me fascinated. I once went in one of my expeditions making docos to a place called Yulo Mm. um, out west to the Yulo lizard races. (laughs) But there was a lady here called the Queen of Yulo.
0: Those poor lizards. Yeah, Queen of Yulo, Isabel Grey. A lot of people would probably know of Isabel Grey. And she used to run a pub in the southwest Queensland area and she earned the name because one night she was ejecting an unruly drinker and he said, who do you think you are, the Queen? She said, yes, I'm the Yulo Queen, now get out. And then the sort of stuck. <laughs> <laughs> but she wasn't necessarily a mentally unstable woman, but as she got older, she drank a little bit more and she'd been in front of court a few times and, and living in poverty. She became a resident of that Willoughburn Mental Asylum in 929. She died there.
1: Okay. And the grave that we feature in this book is Dr. Reginald Wishaw, who had, a, I guess, a totally different experience in the place.
0: Yeah, it's a bit of a sad story. Dr. Reginald Wishaw is one of the victims of the violence of a lunatic asylum. He was a 46-year-old man, a, a handsome man, a husband and a father. He had four sons from a previous marriage who lived in Hobart, and he was working at the Willoughburn Asylum. Now, this is 10 years before... Helen and her family arrived. So he was a predecessor mm-hmm. of Dr. Van Court MacDonald. And he was doing his rounds. Now, they always were accompanied doing their rounds. So it was a Monday morning on the 7th of December, 1908. And Dr. Reginald Whishaw was doing his rounds. And he was accompanied by William Davis, who was the acting chief attendant at the time. And a patient by the name of Herbert Coulter sprang from behind a door, described as full of delusions, yeah. and he struck poor Reginald with a blow to the head from a water hydrant and fractured his skull, and no-one knew he was hiding there. He'd been hiding in the tailor's shop, and so they restrained him. Of course, as you can imagine, poor old Dr. Willshaw was on the ground. Yeah. Herbert Coulter, the man who did this, looked over at Dr. Wishaw and said, leave him alone, he's done. Wow. And there was no understanding as to why he attacked Dr. Wilshaw, whether he had a bad experience with him, whether he was frightened of doctors, whether he thought he might diagnose him as needing further treatment, we don't know. And he'd only been at the san for a few months and appeared to be a very well-educated man. So poor old Dr. Wishaw didn't die. He hovered between life and death for the day. But eventually they declared in the hospital that there's no hope of recovery and he succumbed to his injuries.
1: Mm, so I suppose it's the old, you know, who can say what causes those things to happen, what yeah. goes snap.
0: Exactly. It's frightening, isn't it? And this is the fear of the asylum, while we say that the patients that they're working amongst all seem very controlled. Yeah. Who's to say? But there was a magisterial inquiry, began a week after, and again, William Davis, who was doing the rounds with Dr. Wishaw, said that Coulter was usually so quiet and civil and well-behaved generally, and as a consequence was allowed a little attitude, and he seemed educated. Just to give you an idea of stats, there were 800 patients and around 70 staff,
1: at that time well, well.
0: Dr. Wishaw was there, yeah. yeah. So poor old Dr. Wishaw's portrait went up on the wall and, of course, then eventually Maud moved in, including Helen's father, Dr. Fancourt MacDonald.
1: Yeah, well, surely he must have known about that and you'd wonder how he would think about that taking his family in.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I suppose he thought that the area that they were living in is a separate house. Yeah on a separate part of the grounds. But it still was frightening. In retrospect, isn't it? We often think about things we did as kids that you'd yeah. never do now.
1: No, we never get away with now.
0: Yeah, that's <laughs> it too. And I guess now we think about this and we think, good Lord, but at the time maybe it wasn't so bad.
1: So what became of Helen? Did she ever make any use out of what she learnt there? It was probably a valuable life experience, but what did she do?
0: Yeah, she's an interesting woman. She was there for a number of years at the asylum and then at 24 she married Geoffrey Velicott, and they had two sons, Paul and Edward, who were still with us today. And Geoffrey went to war, and he was on the Thai-Burma railway. Mm-hmm. And he died there in 1943, leaving her a widow at 32. Wow. So post-war in 1915, Helen, 39, went to study at Cambridge in England, wow. which is you know very advanced in yep. the 1950s. And she got a post qualification from the University of London. Mm-hmm. And she went on to actually make an enormous contribution as Vice President for the War Widows Guild okay. of Australia. Yeah. If you're a Victorian and you know the house Talladig, she inherited that from her grandfather.
1: In the castle boat. Yeah.
0: yeah, there you go. And I believe one of her sons still lives in, And it's still the place where they have a, a lot of registered meetings for the Australian Lancia Club, if you've got a Lancia card. A Lancia. So Velocot Street in Canberra was named in honour of Helen and her contributions, and she also authored a couple of books and she died in 2003, aged 91, and survived by both of her sons. So she had a colourful life, and I found her beautiful article about her time there, and that's what I found when I was quite inspired to write the story, even though I've got a Toowoomba history with Barley Henderson myself. And of course it continues today It's a specialist psychiatric hospital And it offers care to patients A number of name changes as you can imagine As we got more politically correct as time went on It went from Toowoomba Mental Hospital or Willowburn To the Toowoomba Special Hospital And then it was renamed the Bailey Henderson Hospital In honour of Dr John Hector Bailey Henderson Who'd made a 30 year contribution to the hospital And that was 1960s And it's been that ever
1: since I wonder if it's left the vernacular in the sense that It used to be called you'll be sent to the asylum uh, To you'll be sent to Bailey Henderson.
0: <laughs> Well, I think that could be a quite a nice place to go. <laughs> you know, just quietly. No, but I mean everyone has that kind of story somewhere in yeah, their background, yeah. don't yeah. they?
1: Fascinating woman.
0: Well we have the two graves for you to find in the beautiful Drayton and Twaomba Cemetery. It's just lovely. Where my grandma and grandfather are, call out to them. <laughs> Doctor Reginald Wishaws is there. You'll find it in section Church of England, yep. one, block three. And Isabella Grey's there, the public section. She has got a headstone, which was nice. It's
1: flat on the ground. It's a bit hard to spot, that one.
0: It is a bit hard to find. Yeah. But that's life in the asylum.
1: If you've enjoyed today's episode of Grave Tales, please consider hitting the Follow Us button. You've been listening to a story from Grave Tales, the series. Available in paperback, ebook, or select titles on audiobook. Music by Kai Engels. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram or on our website. Check out our YouTube channel as well, or put together your own group and come along on our Great Ocean Road Tour.